You're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Well, hello. Welcome to She Became Visible. We are doing another episode this week because there has been so much going on this week. And one of the things that really hit me was the uh, fact that President Ballard, Elder Ballard rather, M. Russell Ballard, is sitting as the president of the 12 apostles, currently acting president. And that if anything was to happen to M. Russell, I mean, uh, Russell um, Nelson and Dallin Oaks, which they're older than he, but not necessarily in better health. So who knows? I mean, the three of them could all keel over tomorrow. Who knows? 90s, 99, 95, 96, 97. I can't remember how old Dallin Oaks is. But the the entire lot of the the first four could keel over at any time. And the thought that M. Russell Ballard could be the next prophet and president of the church with everything that's going on right now really got me. And one of the things I wanted to highlight was if any of you watched Mormonism Live, which I think thousands of you did, they had Lynn Packer, my hero, they had him on. And he highlighted some of his past YouTubes that he's done, where he talked about the fraud that M. Russell Ballard was accused of, and really his success as a businessman, which is zero. And so what that brought me to, how that took me down the rabbit hole, was then to really think about how these men are called into this position. And Lynn Packer pointed out so beautifully that his great-grandfather, I don't think it was his father, it might have been his grandfather, um, Melvin Ballard, was in the was a general authority. And I I don't remember if his father was or not, but regardless, there is this nepotism in there and it doesn't matter what your background is or what, and this is the problem with the lay ministry. It doesn't matter what you, what you've done personally. It's more who, you know, and what, you know, which I know that that's pretty true for everything in this world. But um, in in the case of calling someone a prophet, a seer, a revelator, someone who calls themselves an apostle or a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
I think there needs to be a little bit more to it. Now, many uh, other podcasters have highlighted the fact that 75%, I believe, of the apostles are attorneys. Um, there are a large percentage of apostles that are just very successful businessmen. They all have wealth. And I know that true believing Mormons, um, and I believe I probably used to believe this, think that because you're devoting the rest of your entire life to serving the Lord, that you have to be kind of financially stable to do that. And that's a nice idea if they weren't making a six-figure stipend. And uh, there's a lot of people that would do quite well on six figures. And these men have got retirements. They've got investments that they made. They've got businesses that they sold and, you know, for billions and billions of dollars, if not millions, millions, if not billions. And so they're set. They're pretty set. And this six figure stipend that they get is just extra on top of the fact that there are so many little throw-ins that they get, you know, free airfare, lodging, food, transportation, all of these things are covered. So it brought me to this particular podcast that I wanted to do. So let's look at, we're going to, let me go back. Let's start at the beginning. How are these apostles chosen? Now, I think Lynn Packard mentioned this in one of his YouTube things was, I would have more faith in believing that these men were apostles, seers, prophets, disciples of Christ, if they randomly were inspired, if the 12 or the 11, let's say, let's say we had a couple die off, and it was time to call a few more apostles, they all got together and they, they did their little ritual that they'd supposedly do. And they called some random guy from Indiana, a farmer from Ohio, um, somebody that just works in a industrial shop in Indiana, somebody that works for Caterpillar or Ford or one of the other industries that they used to have in the Midwest. If one of those men would have been randomly called because they were just devoted, they put in 40 hours a week as a bishop or a stake president, plus they had a family, blah, 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 all of the things that they say that these men are. If they randomly called those people, I would go, wow, that's amazing. But when you see the nepotism, if you see the genealogy of where these people have come from, who their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers were, they all live in the vicinity. They all know each other. They're in the same ward. They went to the same school. They were mission companions. I mean, the list goes on and on. And that makes a big difference. So we're going to talk a little bit about nepotism and the future prophet and leader of God's church. I mean, we have to, if you're going to believe that, I think you need to start looking at these men a little bit better and a little bit more um, with open glasses and not rose colored glasses. So, I mean, let's talk about it. What is an apostle? If we look up, I'm going to look it up right now. What is it? Well, wait, let me go here. First of all, a disciple, because I have that already brought up. So let's look at that. A disciple is a person, a, fo a personal follower of Jesus during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles. Another definition is a follower or student of a teacher, leader, 
or philosopher. So that's a disciple. That could be anybody, right? It doesn't say a man or a woman. It says a personal follower of Jesus during his life, especially one of the 12 apostles. So that's the definition of a disciple. Now, what's the definition of an apostle? I think I looked this up already, but I don't want to paraphrase it and get it all messed up. <laughs> Why do I always go to the... Um, um, <laughs> the uh what's that, that whatever that the theme song is i always go to that um okay so an apostle in its literal sense is an emissary the word is derived from ancient greek literally one who is sent off itself derived from the verb to send off and what makes someone an apostle let's see what that is uh in acts 1 12 through 22 states that for a man to be an apostle, he had to have been a member of the band of disciples from the beginning and to have been an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. Well, I think that follows the um, the definition that they made when they were trying to replace um, Judas. And they decided they were going to put some preliminary, some, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I should have eaten today. That would have helped. Uh, some, some definitions before. And this is why people had such a hard time with Paul at first, because he hadn't been one of the uh, apostles. So let's see. Why was Jesus called apostle? Jesus is the apostle envoy or shalike of God. He is the son through whom in these last days, God has spoken his final word. Just as the high priest on the day of atonement acted as the shal shalike, of the whole congregation, so has Jesus made the first atonement. Okay, so these are all references from church things. So um, apostle from Greek, person sent, any of the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus Christ. The term is sometimes also applied to others. Let's see who the others are. Also applied to others, especially Paul, who was converted to Christianity a few years after Jesus's death. In Luke 6, it is stated that Jesus chose 12 from his disciples, whom he named apostles. And in Mark, the 12 are called apostles when mentioned is made of their return from the mission of preaching and healing on which Jesus had sent them. So this is a definition that I think was probably put into place after the, um, you know, because the, the as we all know, the Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were all written um, besides Mark was probably the, they think the first one written 70, 110 years after. And there was a lot of misogyny and patriarchy that kind of went into redefining what these things were. And the reason I mentioned that is because um, we all know that Jesus had quite a lot of female or women that followed him. So let me go down here a little bit so that I can... See, oh, where did they go? Do I want it to come back? Come back. Come back. Okay. I'm just going to go to a full screen here. Okay. What is an apostle? Uh, Jesus never organized a church. We're going to talk about that. Who did Jesus choose as followers? And was there an inclusion of women? And we need to remember that Jesus was Jewish. And that he celebrated the Jewish rituals. We were in the middle of Passover when all of this stuff was going on. 
And so when they, when the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise and commonly known as Mormons, call themselves the restored church, you have to ask yourself, what did you restore? Because Christ never established a church. And that's where they start quoting modern day revelation from Joseph Smith, Doctrine and Covenants, and where they start saying, here's the proof. This is in the scriptures. Well, it's in your scriptures. That's not in anybody else's scriptures. But that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So the fact that Jesus never organized a church, that he was Jewish and he believed in the Jewish religion. But you, I mean, we could go on for hours and hours about Judaism in Jesus's day. And we are not going to go into that because that's not our subject for today. But let's just see a little bit. So I want to remind everyone of the statement that, well, he was just speaking as a man. So we have our, our first prophet, Joseph Smith, and I love the correlation that people are putting together. And I hope that it is very eye opening that people are recognizing the similarities between how Joseph Smith and his charisma was able to convince people to follow him and what Tim Ballard has done. That was one of the first things I thought about. If you've done any research into church history and you know how, um, I think the thing that's interesting about that is um, if you look in the scriptures and there's a lot of kind of scholarly dispute about Mary Magdalene and Martha and and also, um, you know, the brother, they there there there's a lot of conflicting scriptures. And if you want to get into that, you need to just study Bart Ehrman, listen to some of his speeches. But so, I mean, there's times when Mary and Martha were together, when they weren't together, when one was Mary, one was Martha. It's it's very confusing in the scriptures. And Dan McClellan actually talks a lot about this as well. So um, 
it, it's, but I think it's, in, so the story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is busy getting food ready and getting, cleaning the house and getting everything ready for, for the, her guests. And Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just like, teach me, oh savior, you know? And, um, and they highlight that that was better, that Mary was better. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that because these women were making it possible for Jesus to do his thing. They made it, these men, the, the ones that they called apostles were illiterate fishermen. They didn't have money. They didn't have stature in the community. They, in, but these wealthy women, I'm sure they probably cooked the food, did all of the hard work, just like women of today are kind of sanctioned and giving that exact same role. You clean the house, prepare the food, do the laundry, um, make sure that all the children are taken care of. That is your job so that I can be an apostle and prophet. prophet. And that's the way the women are, are depicted in this patriarchal reenactment of what went on. We don't know. Who knows? You know, it was, like they said, it was it was oral tradition and then it was written. And I know a lot of people say that, oh, back in those days, they didn't have written, you know, even the Torah, they didn't use that. They didn't say, oh, it's written here. It was written, but it wasn't read, right? They didn't consider it like, oh, let me get the scriptures out and read it back then. And so they said, but so oral tradition was really, really it when it when it was finally written down, it was verbatim. This is exactly what happened. Well, Bert, Bart Ehrman has proven that that's not true. So, but these women were important, and and I think the most important thing was Jesus recognized their worth, and he treated them differently than their culture treated them, and they followed him, and they were with him, and they were they were disciples of Jesus Christ. So, let's go on. Now, I don't know if any of you are deconstructing or whatever you want to call it. I don't call it that because that seems kind of, I don't know why. I just don't like that. I call it an awakening because I really do feel as though it, that's what it was, is I just gained knowledge. I gained knowledge and, it, and it, I opened up my eyes to more truth. And Bart Ehrman was one of the first people that I turned to and I listened to his podcast and he is an American New Testament scholar focusing on textual criticism of the New Testament, the historical Jesus, and the origins and development of early Christianity. He has written and edited 30 books, including three college textbooks. He has also authored six New York Times bestsellers. Ehrman is the James A. Gray Distinguished Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And his Really, if you want to start from the very beginning, I really suggest starting out with um, Bart Ehrman. And he has a misquoting. Jesus is one of his great books. He talks there about how Jesus kind of became a god. And what did he ever call himself God? I mean, he just goes into everything about Jesus's life. And what I love about Bart is... Um, that he's kind of gone through a deconstruction himself, but that doesn't prevent him from being knowledgeable in his field. And I think that's really important for us to remember. So turn to turn to Bart to understand Jesus, his ministry, and the whole idea of how Christianity got started. So we're going to go now, let me go back, because we're going to turn now to my favorite, my favorite person in the world, which is Lynn Pecker. But let me preface it with this little tidbit of- I want to ask you a question, Elder Ballard. <laughs> yes, it will. 
And in terms of haunting you, I say, boo. <laughs> Yep, he's haunting us. Those two, those three, those three guys especially, Nelson Oaks and Ballard, they are haunting us. But we're going to get started today. So let me bring, uh, let me highlight Lynn Packer. And what I want to do is I, I'm going to, I'm kind of going to go off the trail a little bit because we're going to end up in the same spot. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Utah where all of these men come from. And the first of all, Utah is known as the fraud capital of the world, not just the nation of the world. And I think that is food for thought. Sit down and think, why is Utah the, the land of the true church of God? Why is that known for fraud? And I think you have to look a little deeper into that religion and that will help you to understand because the way that the church is formulated, the way that it goes about um, its business, its corporate endeavors is very secret and it pretty much follows the rule book for all, all the other big corporations. I know I talked about that a little bit. So let's bring on Lynn and his wisdom. Money for its own nonprofit and for OUR's effort to help child sex slaves escape captivity. The goal, placing hope in the hands of a child can save lives. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of introduction here. Um, what Lynn is talking about, this particular podcast, he was talking about fraud and he was talking about multi-level marketing businesses in Utah. And he specifically in this section is highlighting doTERRA. And he's mentioning, I mean, he goes through the whole genealogy of how doTERRA got started, uh, where the, the beginning seed was, and the men who started this business. And he, so he's saying how they partnered up with Tim Ballard. Now, this is where you have this connection with M. Russell Ballard and doTERRA, which is a multi-level marketing and um, and what how they hooked on to Tim Ballard's um, train and they started donating money and they created. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with doTERRA, but it's an essential oil business. And it, it is, you know, frankincense, rosemary time. OK, it's it's they claim to cure and uh, it's a health kind of it's a homeopathic way to uh, treat illnesses and, and things like that. And it's not that I don't believe in essential oils because I do believe in essential oils, but this, this particular multi-level marketing has taken it to a completely different level, of course. And so Lynn Packer is talking about doTERRA's oil that they formulated just for OUR. And this is how close they were working with Tim Ballard and how much they were in bed with this fraudster. So that's where, that's where Lynn, that's what Lynn's talking about here. So let's go on. Literally, doTERRA and their Healing Hands Foundation are doing all they can to help those enslaved by human trafficking with a unique product called Hope. OUR Director of Corporate Partnerships, Doug Osmond said, the traffickers won't take it away because it smells good, but it gives the victims a tool to get out, Osmond says. It's amazing what a difference a simple tool such as this can make. Let me just stop right here and say that Doug Osmond 
is the son of Alan Osmond, one of the Osmonds. And so here again, you have that tie. You have this, this dynasty, this, this line of genealogy where you have success, where you have businesses, the investments. And Doug Osmond is part of the Osmond family. So I just wanted to bring that out. And we at doTERRA have chosen to support an operation called Operation Underground Railroad. I'm so grateful for the collaboration between doTERRA and Operation Underground Railroad. For me, this has been life-changing as well because it's all about collaboration and people coming alongside and working together. And what doTERRA did was they said our best strength that we have are our oils and they created a hope blend. We're excited to now make this available as part of our, our Healing Hands offering. So those that purchase the Hope Blend now, it'll be for the price of $20 US to be able to support their efforts to rescue as many children around the world as possible. When I came in the doors to the convention, someone threw this in my hand. It's called Hope Essential Oil, and it's a brand new product. And what is so cool about it is doTERRA's creating these and they are actually getting them out for free into the hands of potential victims. And you know, their captors will, they don't care like, oh cool, you got a free thing that might help. I have to stop right there. This is where I just get so confused. If I had not, if this was all new, if this, if Tim Ballard wasn't in the news right now and this came over a news broadcast and I was listening to this man say that for free, they're getting this essential oil into the hands of potential sex trafficking children. First of all, how do you know? First of all, how do you recognize a potential sex trafficking victim? And so you're just walking down the street, you see some child, you're thinking, oh, that's odd. Let me give them some of this essential oil. They take the oil. And then what Tim says is the captor doesn't care. He's like, oh yeah, cool. I think he even says that. Cool, you've got some oil, it smells great. Yeah, hang on to it, who cares? I mean, at that point, if you have a fully functioning mind, wouldn't you at that point be going, what? What are you talking about? I mean, if these children or, or I, I mean, I, I have a hard time with this whole children thing in the first place, because why are you going to strip clubs? I mean, this is insane. That whole part is mind boggling as well. First of all, you're going to strip clubs and you're doing, you're asking for lap dances. You're drinking tequila because you're looking for children that have been trafficked. You want to look for children that have been trafficked, go next door or go to church. That's where the children are being trafficked. Okay. So um, the, the whole thing, anybody with any kind of sensibility would be going, that just doesn't make sense. But listen, listen to how, what he says. Help you smell better, look better, whatever. Now here's the secret part. There's a secret message Ooh, for the traffic, message. For, the, for the victim. It says here, appeal for directions. And by the way, we're translating these into Spanish and other languages so we can get them internationally. Appeal for directions and caution. You open it up. And what do you see? I can't. I can't. Like, 
this is, I can't, <laughs> I'm speechless. It's so stupid, I'm speechless, okay? There's a little thing on the outside of the bottle that says, open for more information. And the person that's trafficked, these children that has them in a, a bunker, uh, you know, with shackles on tied to a, a pillar somewhere, they're going to be like, what's that you have in your hand? Oh, yeah, I know. You hang on to that. I'm not going to feed you or um, give you any food or water. I'm just going to sexually um, abuse you constantly. But you just hang on to that little bottle of, of water. And I'm not going to look at it. And I'm going to look at it. I mean, it just, please, please. It's Our logo, along with instructions for how to get out of hell. And that'll do it. I mean, if you're shackled to a post in a basement, uh, what do you do? You just say to your captor, excuse me, um, could I borrow the phone? I need to call Operation Underground Railroad. Yeah, that's going to happen. I mean, the whole idea is just so ridiculous. Doug Osmond put doTERRA and OUR together in 2014 and became a pitch man for Hope Oil. What difference is OUR's Hope Oil made? Neither OUR nor doTERRA has documented a single case where an actual sex slave got a hope vial, opened its secret label, found a phone number to call, and was rescued. Doug Osman would repeat OUR's unproven claim that 10,000 to 15,000 children are imported into the United States as sex slaves every year. During an OUR operation, Osman witnessed the rescue of little children in the middle of a human sacrifice. Osman was quoted as saying, There were three and four-year-olds scarred and mutilated beyond description, but they had so much joy and light in their eyes as we helped them. What I can't. I can't. These children were scarred and mutilated but they had so much hope and light in their eyes. It's just, it's just unbelievable. I mean, have they ever talked to people that have lived through severe trauma? I mean, the fear, they didn't know who these people were supposedly. They didn't know if, if they were really gonna rescue them. Who, who, I mean, and the fact that this Osman guy is gonna profess all of this is a lie. It is deceitful. It is, is unbelievable is what it is. <sighs> Breathe. What you see is the headline over a University of Utah Daily Chronicle column. The columnist wrote, doTERRA partnered with OUR to help trafficking victims by donating branded vials of Hope Oil. The traffickers won't take it away because it smells good, but it gives the victims a tool to get out, said Doug Osman. It's hard to see how an aid strategy that hinges on a trafficker's appreciation for perfume could be considered a strategy, she wrote. Perhaps I am overly cynical, but it's difficult to believe that trafficking victims are who this marketing campaign is really for. This concludes the first section of op-ed number nine. The next section explores how MLM fraud erupted worldwide and Utah became the epicenter of that explosion. Okay, so I wanted to give you a little bit of that background, especially with the Osmond connection. And I, and I think if someone like 
my mother or a lot of people that are in my demographic, a little bit older, that that were raised in a different church. I really do believe they were raised in a different church. When when my family joined the church, David O. McKay was um, the prophet at the time. And from what I've read, and I love, and I know I've quoted him more than once, but Greg Prince, I love Greg Prince. You know, you know how they'll say to you, if you could ask for three people to go out for dinner with, if you, if it was, if you were on your deathbed and you could ask for three people that you could go out to dinner with, who would it be? Greg Prince would be one of them. I just, it's his work that really led me down the path of learning more. And it's just, it's his truthfulness and it's just the information that he has. But I wanted to say, um, in eight, this is what, this was an interview that Greg Prince did. He says, in 1893, there was a panic throughout the country financially. It brought on a depression and the Mormons were not any more immune to that than any other group in society. Near the turn of the century, their president, Lorenzo Snow, took the first steps to bring back to a sound financial footing as an institution, encouraging the people to do what they had been encouraging people to do all along, and that is to pay tithing. Snow told the people, quoting from the book of Malachi, pay your tithing and the windows of heaven will open. It was an interesting and literal interpretation of what Malachi had meant. Opening the windows of heaven meant you opened that firmament above and the rain came down. And there's a true story about how once the saints got the message there, it did start to rain and it saved the crops. So Lorenzo Snow had gone down and supposedly had just randomly spoken. And he, he said this thing because there was a drought and they were, everyone was losing all their crops. And that's what he meant when he said that was literally the heavens will open and you will get rain that you need for your crops. That's what he was talking about. Um, the Great Depression hit Mormons as hard as it did anybody else. Utah was no happy place in those years, but that caused them to reassess some of their financial strategies. And the welfare plan, which was an effort to take care of Mormonism's own people through self-help rather than government help, began in those years. In its earliest days, Mormonism had an utopian idea of a cooperative society. They tried it in Ohio. They tried it in Missouri. They tried it in 19th century Utah with varying levels of success. By the end of the 19th century, all of those those efforts had dissipated and we acted like the rest of American society. And isn't that the truth with everything? I mean, this when when Greg talks about a utopian society, everything that came out of General Conference a couple of weeks ago was was engulfed in a utopian idea. It doesn't really work in the real world. And so then he goes on to say, by the middle of the 1930s, a young state president in Salt Lake City, of course, by the name of Harold B. Lee, took the initiative within his stake to convert unused land into agricultural land for the benefit of members of that stake. That initiative was the seed of what later became known as the church security program and then later as the church welfare program. Uh, the idea of taking care of our own, even if we didn't have this uh, communitarian society uh, that the 19th century tried to define. And that was carried through all the way since then, not just economic, economically, but in a pastoral context as well. And so then he goes on to say, David O. McKay brought this church into the 20th century, even though he got started halfway through that century. Since the time that Brigham Young decided to grow a beard, the face of Mormonism literally was 
was bearded polygamist, bearded polygamist, bearded polygamist. We're clear up to the 20th century and that face hasn't changed. And all of a sudden with a heartbeat, the face of Mormonism became a clean shaven, non-polygamist white knight. David O. McKay frequently wore a bright white double-breasted suit. The contrast in image between that and what had preceded that for a full century could not have been more stark. It was scripted by central casting. He knew the importance of image before the era of professional image makers. Isn't that astounding? David O. McKay understood that if you're going to be accepted by society, you have to resemble society in some ways. And so he said, not only did he look modern and look different, he transformed the church into a modern worldwide church. We were a church that still was insular. We brought people to Salt Lake rather than saying, come to Utah when you're converted. He said, let's reverse that. And it reminds me so much. And I've been doing a lot of studying with the things that are going on in Israel right now with the similarities between the Mormon people and the Jewish people in the belief that they have a, I mean, the whole entire purpose of Brigham Young taking the saints to Utah, which was Mexican territory at the time, was to take it over. They created a theology. They wanted their own land. They wanted to have their own religion and they didn't want anybody else. No one else was invited. Hence, the Mountain Meadows Massacre and all of the Utah Wars and all of the other things that happened and the practical wiping out of the Utes, the, in, the indigenous people that live there. It's the same story. Anytime you have a group of people that really truly believe that they are God's chosen people, over. There we go. I'm back. That was weird. Okay. Anyway, he talked a little bit about um, the priesthood ban with David O. McKay, talked about uh, missionary work. Um, and then he talked about, um, and, you know, and it's hard not to love David O. McKay. Uh, when you consider that he was born and raised in Idaho, and then he went to Scotland on his mission, you could see where he was a little bit um, just not really aware of other cultures and diversity. But that, I mean, hello, prophet, seer, and revelator. Again, let's talk about that. Um, but he goes on to say, okay, let's, let's read this. This is really, because we're going to get into this. You've heard enough from your feminist women friends about what their, I'm going to use a strong word here, grievances are. What are some of them that resonate with you? Specifically, anybody who is going to be called to a church position, male or female, is going to be called by a male. Any policy decisions that are made at a local or general level usually are going to be made by the men, often without consultation with the women. The proclamation on the family was made public without prior consultation to the General Relief Society presidency. It surprised them, and I think it disappointed them. 
having spoken with a couple of them. That's what I mean. The repre representation needs to be there. They need to be included and to feel that their voice makes a difference. And then he goes on to talk about the Relief Society. When I first read House of Females, I, I had no idea growing up at the church that the Relief Society had been disbanded. And that Brigham Young was like, enough of you people. We are we do not need to hear your voices. Thank you very much. And I didn't know that. That was another one of those uh, what type things, right? And um, he goes on to say, the Relief Society is the women's organization within the church. It was initially founded in 1842, only a decade after the church was organized. And for decades, well into the 20th century, it's functioned both at a general, it functioned both at a general level and at a local level, somewhat autonomously. And yeah, those were the good old days. The Relief Society president, be she the general president or the local president, would be chosen by the male ecclesiastical leaders in that area. But then she pretty much ran her show not independently of the men, but pretty much running the organization and consulting them along the way, which by the way, I don't know if he goes into this, but they were financially sound. And when the church was finally really financially struggling, that was one of the first things they did was to tell the Relief Society presidents, give us your money. We need your money. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, the same thing happened after World War II, uh, somehow the Relief Society had figured out a way to save grain and they took that grain to, and it was like, yeah, the women know how to do it, right? Okay, so then he goes on to say, he goes on to talk about the ERA. We don't have time to talk about all that. And Joseph Smith and blah, blah, blah. It's amazing. It's a great interview. You should look it up. It was a Meet the Mormons interview. And uh, here's another thing that I thought this was a great question. Is it tough to be an intellectual in this church? Is it changing? Being an intellectual in this church is a hard way to make an easy living for two reasons. One is the wealth of source material. If you go back and look at the history, it's enormous and troubling because it doesn't always square with the public relations version of things. I'm just going to leave it at that. And that's right. So one of the things, let me see here though. One of the things I wanted to talk about this, and I'm going to just save this paragraph for, oh, I'm losing my, I'm losing my, I'm losing my witch's hat. I might just take it off. Okay. I just think it's appropriate especially with this topic. Okay, so let's go on and listen to Lynn Packer a little bit, talk a little bit more about how fraud is so prevalent in Utah, the home of the basket where we gather all of our men and call them to be prophet seers and revelators. All right, here we go. Based on my covering the MLM industry over several decades, here's my overview and bullet points. Despite their denials, MLM programs are pyramid schemes. It's a rich get richer, poor get poor concept. The MLM version of trickle down economics. The MLM concept cannot work without massive product markups and without widespread fraud. What recruits are told about the potential to make money and what recruits and customers are told about the products. I'll first tackle the pyramid scheme issue. Consider doTERRA's sales guide for wellness advocates titled Handling Objections. Isn't this an MLM company or pyramid scheme? The salesperson is supposed to answer, 
doTERRA is a direct selling company which is very different from a pyramid scheme. A pyramid scheme's focus is to recruit new members and pay bonuses for achieving. Okay, so he goes on to talk and he, I think, let me skip ahead. I think he highlights, yeah, some of the people that are doTERRA representatives and how they explain how this pyramid scheme um, totally supposedly is to be. If someone asks you, um, if, if this is a pyramid scheme, the, the people that are highlighted in this particular episode uh, teach you, they teach you how to respond correctly. All right, so here we go. Hunter was with the cookware sales and recruiting program. I was still in high school. A return missionary tried to recruit me to sell waterless cookware. It was not clear at the time it was an MLM. His sales team was organized like in the mission field. His presentation was patterned after the missionary discussions. The product markup must have been between 300 and 500 percent. I didn't bite. It was a lot later that I figured out it was a scam. The summer of 1967, I was working as an... Okay, I think that cookware has been, I don't know what it was called, but I think that's the Salad Master cookware and that is still very prevalent today it's still going on i i uh i had a friend that was a uh, i was kind of in the vegan world for a while and she really recommended this salad master cookware and it was so funny because i had never heard of it before but when i mentioned it to my husband he said oh yeah my mission president was a very high ranking member of salad master which is an mlm which by the way he was a benson that's all i have to say Okay, I'm, I'm going to skip past the Tupperware thing because he's just talking about um, the difference between, okay, he talks about Amway and, uh, okay, Pyramid. Talks a lot about Amway. And let's see here. Then he goes on to talk about Neutralite, which, which was like the beginning of the whole thing. And then he shows the genealogy of new skin. And it's so funny because uh, Lynn talks a little bit. Let, let me see. Let him let me let him talk. Millions of dollars worth of the hair product each year through more than 120,000 distributors across North America. We picked one of them at random, Clara's. When we arrived, we found New Skin's number one distributor, and we found one of the sources of the illegal hair growth claims. We asked for information on a product called Nutriol and recorded the sales pitch on a hidden microphone. Just leave it in, and in time, right, like I said, the hair follicles are alive. This Nutriol will, you'll start growing your hair. Another salesperson told us Nutriol would stop hair loss. I've seen some literature somewhere that in 99% of all people that start using it, that start using it, it's any stuff is falling out. Add to those conversations statements made by a man identifying himself as Clara McDermott's husband. Now, uh, Lynn points out where Clara came from and how she was the mother of these multi-level marketing programs. But I mean, what does this remind you of? All of these snake oils are being sold today. And I just like Tim Ballard, I love the way they throw out these this data and statistics. 99%, 260,000, 150 million. They just throw out these numbers and everyone just sits back and goes, wow, I had no idea there were that many children being kidnapped from playgrounds. 
I had no idea. I don't know anyone that's been kidnapped from a playground, but wow. I mean, that's like one in every third child is being kidnapped from school. That's pretty serious. We, we better pay attention to this. I mean, at what point people, that's all I have to, let me, let me keep going. And we heard the hair growth claims. So then she goes on to talk about her whole thing and it's pretty amazing. Let me skip past. And he talks about young living. I saw a bunch of those ladies at the airport the other day. Making more violence. And uh, let me skip here because I think I have this already brought up. Televangelist Pat Robertson had his prosperity gospel MLM. He hawked Bibles, then vitamins and shakes. He had Holy Land skin cream. Vitamins marked up seven times. His scheme failed. Here's Robertson's tithing concept. He said the idea is that if you give some of your money to the Lord, he will eventually shower you with earthly blessings. He said multi-level marketing is one of the greatest expressions of the biblical principles of prosperity I know of. Utah has a long history of patent medicines and miracle cures. It prompted former Mormon Church President Joseph F. Smith to speak out against quack medicines. He said, let a reputable and faithful physician be consulted. By all means, let the quack, the traveling faker, the cure-all nostrum, and the indiscriminating dosing with patent medicine be abolished like so much trash. That was then. MLM is now. Church leaders have not denounced either miracle cures associated with multi-level marketing companies or the deceptive practices built into all of them. So-called natural products associated with MLM bring more than $10 billion a year into the Utah economy, second only to tourism, which means they generate tens of millions of dollars not only in tax revenue, but also in LDS tithing receipts. Dun, dun, dun. Why does the state of Utah not crack down on these MLMs? Because it brings millions of dollars into tithing. It's all about the money, people. Add to that, many MLM executives are promoted to top LDS church positions. As an example, new skin officers. Steve Lund was a mission president and an Area 70. Blake Roney was a stake president, mission president, and an Area 70. Truman Hunt, a stake president, a mission president. Rich Wood, a stake president. Hunt made $10 million the year before being made a mission president, not including stock sales. Then there's New Skin's LDS tithing donations. In 2011, Roney and Lund donated hundreds of thousands of shares of New Skin stock to the LDS church, which sold them for $10 million. Because church leaders support MLM, they also have to endure critical news reporting that tie MLM to Utah and the Mormon faith. Gina is 25 and has tried selling for three different MLMs. Okay, that's, there we go right there. So that was my point was these are your general authorities. These are your apostles. These are the men that are being chosen to supposedly talk with God and stand at a pulpit every six months and give you direction for your life. And that's what I think is absolutely frightening. So let's go back. 
So here's our new skin executives. Uh, mission president, area 70, area 70, mission president, stake president. Uh, millions of dollars made off the backs of good, believing, hardworking members of the church that fall so easily into these multi-level marketing programs. It's so sad. Now, I want to talk a little bit about these men that are called. Now, obviously, Tim Ballard is not a general authority, but he was working his way up. And I find it interesting that the church came out and denounced him so quickly uh, and so radically versus what happened to some of these other men. Now, this is a picture of Paul H. Dunn. Any of you young people have never heard of him. But when I was growing up, he was the most famous youth speaker in all of the church. And I think I mentioned in one of the other podcasts that I did that my younger brother, who was um, eight years younger than I am, he he his goal, he verbally said, my goal is to be like PH, uh, Paul H. Dunn someday. And when Lynn Packer actually um, put it all out into the light and they could not hide it any longer that this man was a liar. And I mean, not just fudging the facts a little bit. He literally was saying, I was a professional baseball player. I was a war hero. I held this man in my arms as he died while the man's alive and living in, I don't know, Kansas City or something. I can't remember. Um, so it was it was true fabrication, out and out lies. And what did the church do? They just kind of pushed him. You know, they made up some excuse about his wife being sick and gave him emeritus status. And they didn't actually do anything. There were no consequences. That's my point to this behavior, right? Okay, so then we have, now this is a picture right here of Ezra Taft Benson. Ezra Taft Benson is not a criminal, but to me, he did, he was, he did criminal things. And mostly I would say he got involved with the John Birch Society. He tried, he wanted to run for vice president with uh, George Wallace, who was a huge racist. And uh, Benson was a racist. He was uh, a product of the times. I will give him that. It was right after World War II and everybody was communism. And he jumped on the John Birch Society. But the problem is he would not stop. He also was uh, working as Secretary of Agriculture at the same time that he was an apostle. And he, David O. McKay loved him, absolutely loved him. And he took advantage of that. And that's what makes me so angry. He took advantage of the love that David O. McKay had for him. And as David O. McKay aged and his mental capacity started to dwindle, Ezra Taft Benson took advantage of that as well. And he he kind of did some kind of a, thing where he wanted David O. McKay to be on the front of a John Birch Society publication. David O. McKay said, absolutely not. But he finagled him into doing it. But fortunately, someone caught it before it was actually published. And they did the same thing to, to Ezra Teff Benson. They sent him off to Germany. Let's, you know, that's what they do to these men. They send them on missions. They kind of make them quietly go away. There's no consequences to their lying, their deceit, and their dishonesty. And that's, I think, why M. Russell Ballard is where he's at today. Now, this is M. Russell Ballard, Ballard here, the uh, largest picture on the far right. And 
if you will go back and listen to, to Mormonism Live that was broadcast last night, uh, Lynn Packer talks, he, he just did a, an episode on YouTube on Ballard, and he talks all about his penny stock, how he was actually fined by the SEC for fraud. He had his license taken away for investments. And Lynn talks a lot about that. So if you just go to YouTube and type in... Um, uh, Lynn Packer and then fraud, you'll find his latest where he talks all about M. Russell's failed businesses. Now, this is a picture of Homula, I'm going to say Homula, who was a 70 that was mysteriously kind of excommunicated. He says he has spent most of his career working for the Arizona-based law firm of Gallagher and Kennedy. He was largely involved in Superfund and other environmental law issues. In the LDS Church, Hamula served as Elders Quorum President, Bishop, Stake High Counselor, and Stake Young Men President. He also served as President of the Mesa, Arizona Salt River Stake and as the first President of the Mesa, Arizona Red Mountain Stake when it was organized in 1992. From 1994 to 1997, Hamula was President of the Church's Washington, D.C. South Mission from 2000 to 2008. Hamula was an Area 70 in the church's North American Southwest area. He became a member of the first quorum of the 70 during the church's April 2008 General Conference. After serving as a counselor in the area from 2011 to 2014, he served as president of the church's Pacific Area Headquarters in Auckland, New Zealand. On August 8, 2017, Hamula was excommunicated from the church. While the church's news release did not specify the reason for his excommunication, it did state that it was not the result of personal apostasy or disillusionment on Hamula's part. Hamula is the first general authority of the LDS church to be excommunicated since George P. Lee in 1989. Now this um, is... This picture right here is George P. Lee that was excommunicated. Now he, the church did come out and say that he was excommunicated for sexual behavior. And I could not find anything on Hamula. Uh, if anybody knows anything, and this is what I love about living in Utah. Um, what is it? I mean, when I talk about people being ordained as apostles and they all have to be connected to somebody else, it's the same thing with information. You people that live here in Utah, you all know somebody who knows somebody and you have secret information. You all have this, like, I have a friend that knows this and this. Well, I'm from Illinois and Oregon. I don't have any friends that know anything, okay? So if any of you have discovered over the last few years what actually happened with Hamula, I would love to know what that is. So these are um, these are some of the men. Now, as I mentioned, he was never, he became prophet, okay? This is a man with sketchy business practices uh, behind the scenes, um, under the table practices, and he becomes the prophet of the Lord. This is the man that could become the prophet if the other two died off suddenly. And this man was a 70, was excommunicated. Nobody knows why. He was excommunicated for sexual practices. He actually was charged after he was excommunicated. He was charged with, um, uh, he had been molesting a neighbor child. That's sex trafficking, Tim Ballard, right there. Molesting a neighbor a nine-year-old neighbor, that's sex trafficking. You don't have to go to Haiti, okay? You don't have to go to Haiti to find this. Let me reach really quick and find 
Uh, Jana Reese, who is a religion reporter, did a wonderful article on the excommunication of Hamula. And um, I like what she said about it. Let me see if I can. I'm going to. I'm going to fast forward this a little bit. She and her husband, Cole, first met. And recruit a downline. Okay, this is Lynn again. Now we're going to talk about politics. Trump political MAGA rallies were like religious revivals and campaign events rolled into one. The concept was an evolution of his appearances at MLM conferences. The now defunct Trump multi-level marketing network sold skincare products, nutritional supplements, weight loss products, and multivitamins. The service included customers sending in urine samples for analysis to see what supplements they needed. Trump's MLM rallies were forerunners of his political rallies. Okay, I, I don't want to make too many of you run away, but can you see the correlation there? It's amazing. Now, I found this article that Jana Reese had uh, written, and I, it was in 2017. And she says, in a surprise announcement, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints revealed Tuesday that James J. Hamula of the First Quorum of the Seventy was released from his calling as their general authority and also as communicator from the church. It is the first time a top LDS leader has been excommunicated in nearly three decades. Here's the preliminary coverage from the Salt Lake Tribune, which states LDS church spokesman Eric Hawkins provided no details about the removal, but the church did confirm Hamula was no longer a member of the church and that his ouster was not for apostasy. Well, that's kind of like, well, then what was it? One thing I doubt we'll see, though, are significant details about what happened and why Elder Hamula has been removed, or at least we don't get those answers from the church itself. And then she goes on to say, I can see both sides to the church's longstanding radio silence where excommunication is concerned. On the one hand, confidentiality can protect excommunicants and their families from unwanted and unhelpful judgment. It leaves the door open for a potential rebaptism and a restoration of blessings. At least in theory, you can also argue that gossip thrives in the absence of real information. I have heard of, ca of cases, for example, where a church member has been excommunicated for apostasy or lack of belief, but has then been exoriated in the Mormon rumor mill for a host of other fabricated reasons from, I heard she had an affair, to, I don't think he's paid tithing in years. Mormons used to communicate people more publicly Oh, used to excommunicate people more publicly, more transparently. In the 19th century, Joseph Smith openly chastised, chastised fellow church leaders and some were excommunicated like William Laws, Orson Pratt, Thomas March, and many others. And so he goes on to say, and in 1989, the most recent high profile excommunication of an LDS general authority, George P. Lee, was removed for apostasy and other conduct unbecoming a member of the church. And I would, that sounds very Tim Ballardy, doesn't he? But this is what I find interesting. So Hamula was excommunicated in 2016, 2017. Before that, it had been 30 years before that, that another general authority had been excommunicated. 
And, and then as we know, if you go back in church history, like Janice said, Joseph Smith would excommunicate people right and left. I mean, if they, if they just dared to disagree with him, which sounds very much like Tim Ballard, because from what I understand, he had a very um, quick lit temper and uh, would fire people randomly. And so I think there's uh, so many similarities. It's not even funny, but um, where is my art? Okay. Where's my article on Okay, but I find what what I really find is funny is um, if you go back and you compare the September 6th with how long it took for them to to um, excommunicate anybody, any any of these men in authority. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. So uh, in the interview with Gregory Prince, they said, do you think the excommunication of the September 6th in 1993 had a chilling effect? We've had occasional waves of anti-intellectual activity within the church. One of them was in the early 1980s, and some of my close friends were caught up in that. A more destructive one was a decade later that resulted in the excommunication of a half dozen people, primarily because they persisted in asking the why question. So here you have six people that were excommunicated, uh, you know, Maxine Hanks and, and um, Allred, I mean, all of these people that had the nerve to ask why they were devoted, especially uh, Allred. I mean, she was the mother of nine, uh, very faithful in the church, but she had the audacity to claim some intelligence and some historical referencing to a mother in heaven. Same with Maxine Hanks. That's it, folks. That's it. They had an opinion and they had no problem excommunicating them. But when it comes to these men that are suspiciously uh, poor business, illegal business practices, they, they just kind of make them go away. It's very, very interesting. Okay. So in the handbook, it says the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, anciently Jesus Christ called 12 apostles to help lead his church. You can see in Luke 6, 12, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And then First Nephi doesn't count people. Please stop quoting your own scriptures. But in Luke and Ephesians, he does, they don't exactly say men. It kind of says, um, uh, I think in Luke, it says he called unto him his disciples and of them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. And then Ephesians, it says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, and it's that whole scripture. They, I mean, everybody understands that they were they were men, but it didn't specify specifically that he only called men. He just said, these are the men that he called. And uh, we've already talked about the, um, so this is, I, I want to talk about um, Christopher here, because I think he is one of the most dishonest men that we have in our Quorum of the Twelve at this time. He kind of got his infamy from the 60 Minutes uh, that was talking about the church SEC issue. And in that, uh, the Salt Lake Tribune says, church says unfortunate 60 Minutes episode was based on unfounded allegations, which is a lie. Utah-based faith says it believes in having adequate resources available to fulfill its divinely appointed responsibilities. In a segment, Christopher Waldell, first counselor in the presiding bishopric, the ecclesiastical overseer of the church's 
far-reaching financial, real estate, investment, and charitable operations, referred to Ensign Peak as the faith's treasury, and referred and reiterated that it is seen as a rainy day fund intended to buffer it economically. He declared he declined to address assertions that the Ensign Peak assets have reached as much as 150 billion when asked at one point if that figure was in the ballpark Waddell smiled and said only that the church had significant resources now we know that is a lie so here we are here we are with the claim to be another testament of Jesus Christ the only true and living gospel upon the earth and I find it very interesting that this image of Jesus Christ with his beautiful blue eyes, I don't know if Josephus declared that Jesus had blue eyes. Maybe he did. I don't know. I know Tim Ballard has blue eyes. I know that Joseph Smith had blue eyes. And it. And I just want to know what is it about these, these people and their blue eyes? I mean, is it the blue eyes that compels them and gives them this charisma that people just cannot look away? I want to know, is there a correlation between this? But bottom line, that is the conclusion of my thoughts for today. I really wish that there was, I almost wish, and maybe there will be, now that Tim Ballard has actually had some lawsuits filed against him, maybe, you know, OUR is probably going to have some lawsuits filed against him. Maybe Ballard will somehow, I don't know, at his age, maybe they'll just let it go. But if there was some legal ramifications for his behavior, what would that do as acting president of the apostles? What would that do? How would the church spin that? How would the church use their word salad to talk about somebody who just gave a talk and about testimony of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith and the all the stuff that he said in conference, which was just jibber jabber. It will be very interesting to see. So that concludes our report for the day. I really wanted to highlight the fact that I think it's extremely concerning that these men, I think it's that because of the pool that they're drawn out of, that's what's creating the problem. They are seriously not going out and searching for good humans that could serve in this. Basically, it's just a corporate board of directors. And I would also like to reiterate that if you were to bring in six apostles, disciples of Jesus Christ that were women, I truly believe that 99% of this wouldn't have happened. I really believe that women, I know this sounds very kind of anti-male and I'm not trying to be, but I believe that women have a gift. And I think that, um, and now obviously there are women that are suing Tim Ballard that it's, they did not say that they were hoodwinked. They said that they were groomed and that's the difference. It's one thing to be suspicious because they admitted that. They said it, their gut instinct told them something was wrong but then they believed all of the authority that, that Tim Ballard proclaimed to have. And I think there's a huge difference be between instinct, instinctual behavior and grooming because that's psychological. So I believe if they were to bring in at least six women out of those 12, that that would really curb a lot of these 
this illegal activity, especially when it's coming down to hiding um, abuse in all forms, monetary abuse, um, misogyny, all of the other areas of SA that are being broadcast right now. It's just, it's frightening. And they've got to start taking this seriously. You, you cannot just talk about rainbows and puppy dogs at conference and think everybody's going to look the other way. It's not going to happen this time. It's not going to go away. In fact, I was looking through a list of uh, people that had LDS people that had been accused of horrible crimes. I forgot about Jody Arias. You've got Ruby Frankie and you've got Jody Hildebrandt. And I forgot about Jody Arias. And then you've got uh, Corin uh, Richards right now that's being accused. The one thing I have a problem with her, and I think I've mentioned this already, is she made her husband a Moscow mule and then put fentanyl in it. So I'm like, where's our church activity? I don't know. But um, but she has Mormon uh, feelers. So there is a connection there. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this broadcast. I cannot encourage you enough to not go to YouTube and find Lim Packer. Also, listen to Mormonism Live from last night. Um, Bill and RFM and Lynn did a fabulous podcast. They just kind of went over some of Lynn's YouTube videos. They're, they just don't stop. They're just amazing. And the information is easy to follow. As I mentioned before, Lynn puts his things in chronological order and makes it really easy to understand. So thank you so much for joining me. I will see you again next week on She Became Visible. And I really want to encourage all of you women to stand up find out who you are, declare it to the world. I'm here. All right. Good night.